So if Jesus truly is the Son of God, the kingdom of God truly comes in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. If he's truly going to be able to set captives free, if his scripture told us the reason that Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil, then he had to have power and authority over all things, physical, spiritual, the creation itself must respond to his voice, must heed his commands. Because if we look back to the beginning in the garden and we see what originated there with man giving in to the temptations of Satan, and we watch the promise that God gives us there, and that very first covenant with man, as he promises, that he was going to send the offspring of woman, a man, the God-man, his son Jesus Christ, to crush the head of the serpent, then when he showed up, he had to exhibit before us evidences that he had the power to do exactly that. And so we've seen, as we've walked through Mark's gospel, we've seen these evidences. We've seen these proofs. Not that God owes us proof, but it's because God doesn't call us to blind faith. God is gracious enough. That he sends us these markers, these signals. He shows us these signs that Jesus truly is the Christ. And so last week we saw this playing out, out on the ocean, on the Sea of Galilee, giant lake in fact. And as Jesus was out there in the boat with his disciples in a terrific storm, just swooped in. And in that moment of fear, his disciples doubted. They doubted his goodness. Jesus, do you not care that we're perishing? They cried out. And then with just a word... Jesus was speaking to the storm, but in reality, he was speaking to his disciples, to us as well. They said, peace, be still. And immediately, everything got calm. All doubt left his disciples, but an even greater fear arose. What kind of man is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? They were terrified because they knew the answer to their question. This was God. They were in a boat with God. And to be that close to the living God, the Holy One. It's a terrifying thing. So as we come this morning to another one of these just miraculous encounters, so we see Jesus confronted by a man that's filled with demons. We see yet again an evidence, a proof, a signpost pointing forward to the last days of the last days when once and for all Jesus will utterly and totally and completely destroy the works of the devil. Set right all things that were broken right there in the garden. And so I would encourage you this morning as we, as we open to this text in Mark 5. You know, there's certain passages of Scripture which require great amounts of commentary in order for our simple minds to grasp it. In order to farm out the truths that God has for us. While God's Word stands on its own, in all instances, there are those passages which we, we just seem to really wrestle with. We really need a little bit of extra help at times. This is not one of those texts. This is one of those beautiful texts where I could simply read it to you, sit down, and we could all go away. We're not going to do that. But I would encourage you, before we open God's Word this morning, set your heart right now that you're not going to allow Satan to come and snatch away the Word. Don't allow yourself to be distracted. I know it's easy to go into autopilot. This is a long passage of text. It's easy to go into autopilot and wait for the sermon to begin. Or maybe you're waiting for the sermon to end. But I'm asking you to dig in here. Don't allow the distractions to get hold of you. Go ahead and stand to your feet, please. As we read the first 20 verses of Mark's gospel, the fifth chapter. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? 
He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us into those pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it, told it to the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had legion. He was sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him. But he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has been merciful to you. And he went away and began to proclaim it in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. May he who has ears hear the reading of God's word. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for your glorious word. We stand here today and proclaim that it is enough. May no words that I speak in this moment detract from the truth of your word. May no words that I speak in these moments to come do anything to draw hearts or minds or eyes or ears away from the life-giving word that comes from your mouth. Be with us now. Be glorified in our time. So your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So the text began. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now it had been a long day of teaching and preaching and healing. So it would have been natural for the disciples to assume that Jesus was taking them on a little bit of a getaway. They were going away for a mini vacation, perhaps, to the other side of the lake. Because he was exhausted. So exhausted that he slept through this terrifying storm the night before. And so they headed east by southeast to this place, this country of the Gerasenes. Now, we don't know exactly where this town was that they ended up. There's a town called Gerasa there on that western side of the lake of the Sea of Galilee. But it's about 33 miles for the shore. That would have been too far for the people to run into the town and come back in one day like the text tells us. Now, if, if you read in Matthew's gospel, he says that they went to the countryside of the Gadarenes. There was a town called Gadara, and it was a little bit closer. It was only about seven miles from the shore, still a long trip in one day. The problem there was they didn't have the hills or the tombs that we read about in this morning's text, so that doesn't seem right. There was an Arabic town called Karasa. It could have been the one that was translated into Gerasa, or the Gerasenes, and it had all the things that you needed, the hillside. It was on the side of the sea. It had the tombs. Perhaps that was it. We don't know for sure. We don't know for sure what this town was, but it doesn't exactly matter. What we do know is that Jesus had traveled from the east side to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And that once you crossed over to the west side, you came into a region called the Decapolis, as we read about in the final verse in this morning's text. The Decapolis, as that, as that first part, Deca, meaning ten, would indicate, it was a loosely gathered group of ten cities. These cities that had been freed by the Romans in about 63 B.C., the general Pompey, he had, he had founded these cities, he had, he had set these cities free, and they were now Roman Gentile cities. So what we're witnessing here is the first time that Jesus leaves Jewish Palestine during his earthly ministry and goes out to the Gentile country. Now Gentiles had been coming to him for healing and for food and for, and for miracles, but this is the first time that we see Jesus leaving Jewish country to go out amongst the Gentiles. He's traveling to them. Verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So any thoughts of a restful getaway were immediately dashed. This man comes charging down, and immediately he comes and confronts them. A little bit later, Mark would tell us that not only did he have an unclean spirit, but that he was demon-possessed. In fact, Matthew tells us that there was two men that were demon-possessed. But our story this morning, it only focuses on one of them. Verse 3, And he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. 
For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Apparently, one of the side effects, one of the consequences of this demon possession, this unclean spirit, was supernatural strength. So much so that nobody could even bind him. But why did they want to bind him? What purpose do they want to bind the man? Well, this is the beauty of the synoptic gospels. We can look in Matthew's gospel, and he says this, that the man was so fiercely violent that no one could pass by that way. Luke also tells us that the man had not worn clothes for a very long time. So you've got this guy absolutely out of control. He's a true menace to the people. He's violent. He's naked. He's out of his mind. Can you imagine? This is a real problem. Nobody wants to go fight a naked, crazy guy. Nobody even wants to pass by that way. I mean, look, even if he wasn't violent and he wasn't strong, I'm still not messing with you until you put some pants on. But, but the nakedness pointed to more than that. The, the nakedness wasn't just about exposure to the elements and to his neighbors, as, as bad as that is. You see, as, as you read through Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, what you'll find is that nakedness is very often in communion with sin. It communicates sin. We think about Adam and Eve there in the garden. With the first sin, they immediately recognized their nakedness. Over and over again in the Old Testament, to expose someone's nakedness is tied to some kind of perverse sexual sin. I believe that what's happening here is that outwardly this guy is manifesting what it is that's inside of him. It's not just that he's in turmoil. It's not just that he's oppressed and possessed by demons. This this shows us. It's, It's a reflection of the sin that is within him. The outward appearance that shows us what's, what's on the inside. And this man, just like the violent storm, he's a very picture of chaos. And he lived among the dead people in the tombs. This man found no place among the living. The townspeople had no use for him. Clearly, he didn't love them. So he had no place there among the living people. He was truly unclean. He was unclean because he had an unclean spirit. He was unclean because he was a Gentile, a pagan, by definition, unclean. And he was unclean because he lived among the tombs. See, God's law had said that you don't touch dead bodies. Then the oral law, which people had added on top of that, they carried that so far as that you became unclean if you were to even touch a tombstone. This man not only lived among the dead bodies, he lived in the tombs. He was unclean by every possible standard. Untouchable, unclean, unloved. An absolute wretch of a man. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountainside, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. He wasn't just unclean. He was tormented. He was tortured so much so that he's shouting and crying out and he's cutting himself, harming himself. One of the most basic of instincts is the desire for self-preservation, to care for our bodies. You don't have to teach a baby to pull back from something that hurts. As a matter of fact, we've got to be enticed. We've got to be encouraged to press on in the face of pain, physical and otherwise, for the sake of something that's greater. But this guy wasn't pressing on. This wasn't as if this man was enduring pain for the sake of the gospel. It wasn't as if he was bravely facing physical pain so that he could save his neighbor. This was needless pain, senseless pain, cutting himself, gashing himself. This was the work of Satan and his demons because they so hate God. They so despise God and the things of God that while they know they can't destroy God, they're going to go after that which is made in his image, namely man and woman. It's the work of Satan. And while not every violent man is so influenced by demons that we would call him oppressed, the desire to hurt ourselves and to hurt others absolutely originates with him. You've got to know that in the beginning, as Cain took the life of his brother Abel, you know that Satan was in his ear. You know that as Judas hung himself, took his own life, that it was Satan that was whispering in his ear. It's the work of Satan. It's the work of his demons that drive us to a point that we hate that which is made in the image of God, whether it is someone out there or whether it is ourself. So we see this man as he's cutting himself. These demons had so influenced this man that he had abandoned everything that meant to be human. All of our most basic instincts went out out the window. So that he was a threat to other people and he was a threat to himself. A wretch of a man. Has there ever been anybody more helpless 
more hopeless in all the world than this dude. And while this is an extreme case, dear friends, this is an extreme case. Ultimately, this is where sin and Satan leads. The consequences of sin and Satan in this guy's life. Very likely we have to imagine that this guy's life looked like a bunch of other people's in the beginning. He just enjoyed the good things of this earth. Followed after the flesh. Maybe it began with a little bit too much wine, a little bit, a few too many women. But what we see here is the ultimate manifestation of what Paul talks about in Romans 1. Where he says that because of the, the despicable nature of man, because of our desire for sin, that he hands us over to these things. He hands us over to a detestable mind. To do despicable things, things which ought not be done. He hands us over. He had handed this man over so much so that he couldn't find his way back, completely out of control. And it wasn't fun anymore. He's crying out and he's gnashing his teeth and he hates himself. So completely separated from God and man. Now we don't need to get all tied up in the mechanics of this. So we've got this unhealthy obsession at times with demons. Always trying to figure out, is this man oppressed? Is he possessed? Is he obsessed? What's the name of this demon? Well, what you'll find is that God speaks very little about the mechanics of demon possession, about how we determine whether somebody is under a demon possession, some kind of spiritual attack, or just lured away by their own evil vices. Because he doesn't want us wrapped up in this. And apart from these extraordinary instances in the life of Jesus and in the life of the apostles, we're told very little about exorcism, about chasing demons out of people. We're just told to resist the devil, to live lives of holiness, to persevere in the word, to cling to the body, and to resist. Someday in God's perfect timing, we will study demons. We'll talk through demons and where they came from and how, how we're to think and relate to them. So this morning, we need to just recognize that the very same spirit, these demons, these angels of darkness, which so influenced this man that it could be called a possession, those very same influences are at work today, attacking you and attacking me and attacking those that we love. Those very same demons would drive us to this very same place were they able. That that is the spirit of darkness that is around us in this world. As long as these demons are allowed to roam, to working to use our, our innate sinful desires to lure us away into darkness, to capture as much influence over us as they can. No, we may not ever find ourselves possessed like this. As a child of God, in fact, you will not. You're filled with the Spirit of God. There's no room there for the Spirit of darkness to take hold, but He will tempt, and He will attack, and He will try. He'll come after us with everything that we have. So that when we look at this man, we see this visible ens enslavement, we need to recognize that those same forces are at work today. While we may never find ourselves naked, cutting ourselves out among the tombs, we will see the effects of their influence in our lives and the lives around us. Verse 6, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. So the man comes charging down the mountain out of the tomb straight towards Jesus. I can just imagine his disciples scrambling. I picture John jumping back in the boat, Peter whipping out his sword. Look, these dudes may have been dressed, but they probably needed some new pants after this. They see this demon-possessed man come running down the mountain, and they don't know what comes next, but he doesn't attack. He just sits down. He falls down before Jesus. There was a violent storm on the ocean, uncontrollable by man. Nothing man could do, and yet with a word, Jesus brought complete peace in the middle of chaos. There was a violent man. No one could chain him. No one could control him, neither he nor anybody else. And by merely stepping off of a boat, Jesus brings complete peace in the middle of chaos. Like a wild animal laying down before his master. He knows that he needs to be subject to him. This uncontrollable man, in an instant, sitting as docile as can be, laying down. The Greek word here, Prosecono. It's this picture that, that can carry with it this, this, this idea of worship. This, this demon falls down, but he's not worshiping. These demons don't love Jesus. They hate him. But they know they have no other choice. And while they are not worshiping in this instance, and they are not worshiping him today, there was a time when they were among the beautiful angels in heaven, 
sometime after the creation and before the fall. These angels were there in heaven. They were singing night and day, day and night, praises to King Jesus. These demons, they believed and they trembled. And so they fall down. They cause this man to fall down, immediately recognizing Jesus. This man wouldn't have recognized Jesus. He had never seen him before. He had probably never heard his name. Because if the good news had traveled to that side of the lake, nobody was going out into the tombs to tell this guy. But the demons immediately, immediately they recognize and they fall down before him. Verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? See, demons have to ask questions because they're not omniscient. They don't know everything. Now, they may have heard that Jesus was here and that his earthly ministry was in full force. They may have even known that he was headed across the lake. I would imagine demons talk to each other somehow. But they didn't know exactly what was happening and when it was happening. So they asked, what have you to do with us? Now, you'll routinely see this throughout the scriptures. As demons, they use the vocal cords of their hosts to speak, but they didn't want to do this. You see, demons want to blend in. Satan himself wrapped himself, cloaked himself as what? An angel of light. It's their desire to just fly under the radar and just to blend in. And yet when the presence of Jesus shows itself, they have no choice. It was like the man with the unclean spirit in the synagogue. They cry out a shriek of horror, almost like a gasp in terror at the presence of Jesus standing before them. And you'll notice they cry out. What have you to do with us? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. See, at this point in Mark's gospel, it's only been demons that rightly recognize Jesus, that vocalize this truth. They're answering the question that the disciples asked out on the boat. Who then is this man that the wind and the waves obey? The demons say, he is Jesus. He's Son of the Most High God. The Most High God, that was a, that was a term that the Gentiles often used throughout the Old Testament because they had all kind of gods, all kind of made-up gods, stone gods, wood gods, broken gods. They knew that there was something different about this God. They knew that this God acted on behalf of his people. He didn't need his people to offer him some kind of power. He didn't need his people to feed him or to meet his needs. That this was the God of redemption. And so we'll see throughout Scripture, they recognize something different, so they refer to him as El Elyon, the Most High God, the Sovereign One, the Exalted One. And now his son is here, just as the angel Gabriel had told Mary would happen. He told her, Luke 1, 31 through 32, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. Are these demons... They're monotheistic. What you'll find throughout Scripture is that demons, their theology is pretty orthodox. It's their worship that's disordered. But they know who this is. They know who God is. They know that he is the Most High God, and they know that this is God's Son, the Son of the Most High standing before him. It's a fascinating confession. If you look back, the prophet Isaiah gives us a glimpse at the fall of Satan and his demons. What led them to be cast from heaven down to earth? Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 says this. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. That's talking to Satan. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. It's the root of sin. The thing which caused Satan to rebel against God and he and his demons to be cast from heaven, the same thing that caused Adam and Eve to reach out their hand and take from the fruit the desire to be like the most high. And now the Son of the Most High is standing before them, and they have no choice but to confess him. The demons went on. I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to them, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Adjure. That's a weird word. You almost never read it or hear it apart from scenes where there's an exorcism happening, where there's some interaction between demons and a man of God. It means to beg in this instance. They're begging. They're begging for mercy. These demons who know no mercy, who show no mercy, 
like little girls before Jesus, Son of the Most High God. There's nothing they can do but beg. Please don't torment me. This is rich. Please don't torment us. By God, we beg you. Now, Matthew adds an interesting note. What Matthew says is that they, that they exclaimed, have you come to torment us before the time? You see, they knew who Jesus was. They knew that Jesus had come to destroy them and to destroy the works of the devil. But they also knew that when he came this first time, it was not their ultimate and infinite demise. That he was going to come and he was going to destroy them with the works of the cross, but he was going to ascend to heaven. That they were going to be allowed to roam a bit longer, to tempt and work a bit longer. That it wasn't until his second coming that they would be ultimately and completely cast into hell. They knew this. They didn't know the season. They didn't know the day. They didn't know the time. But they knew that this was, the, this was the pattern in which it was going to play out. And so they cry out, I thought we had more time. Wait a minute. If you come to destroy us now? And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Just as Jesus does with his human opponents, he answers their question with a question. To throw them back on their heel. What is your name? That we are Legion, for we are many. I don't know that Legion is a true, proper name as much as a description of who these demons were. A legion is a, is a Roman military term. It refers to thousands of soldiers, anywhere from four to 6,000 soldiers. We don't need to get tied up in the specifics of the number. This could have been 6,000 demons. It could have been 6 million demons. The point is, it was a bunch. We are legion, for we are many. And he begged him, goes, goes right back to the begging, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Don't send us out of this area. Begging him again, please don't do this. Because, you see, just as the demons aren't omniscient, they don't know everything, they're not omnipresent either. They can only be in one place. Even Satan can only be in one place at one time, and apparently they liked it here. Whether it was because it was a pagan country, and they found very little resistance there, they found it easy. They found people almost welcoming and willing to receive them to such a degree that they were able to possess this man like this. But they didn't want to leave. They begged him, would you please leave us here? Luke adds that they, they begged him not to throw them into the abyss, the bottomless pit. Again, they knew the way this thing was going to play out. They knew that which we were told a bit later in Revelation 20, that with Jesus' second return, he was going to take them and he was going to bind them. He was going to cast them into a pit where they would remain for a thousand years, only to be let loose at the end of that thousand years where they would make war, be defeated, and cast into the lake of fire and sulfur that never goes out. They knew this, very orthodox in their understanding of this. And so they're begging, please don't throw us into the bottomless pit. Please don't chain us and throw us into the abyss yet. Jesus could have done it. He could have done it. He could have thrown them in the pit in this moment. He could have skipped the pit and thrown them straight into hell if that had been his desire. And wouldn't you expect him to? Why would you allow these demons to continue to have this say? Why would you allow them to continue to torment the people in this region and in the world? Why would you continue to allow them to have this sway over humanity? Because the God that can use the most vile of sins for his purposes, to accomplish his will, for his glory and for our good, he chose to allow them. Just like he would allow Satan to tempt Job to show the righteousness of one that followed after him. Just as he would allow Satan to sift uh, Peter so that while he might fail in that moment, he would be equipped and strengthened for the work that he would carry out on behalf of the church and on, on behalf of Christ. It wasn't yet time, so we allowed them to stay. Verse 11, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down a steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Jewish people don't mess with pigs. They're amongst the unclean animals. They had cloven hooves. That means that they were split into two, and they chewed their own cud. That means that they would have eaten grass or hay. They would have swallowed it, allowed the bacteria and the acid and whatever else in their stomach to do its work, puked that back up, finished chewing it, and then swallowing it. God had declared these animals, including the pigs, to be off limits. 
to be unclean. But you would have never seen a herd of 2,000 pigs there in Israel. And yet here they were in Gentile country. The guys are begging, would you send us there? These demons are begging, would you send us there? Now again, just as with the name Legion, we don't need to get tied up in the number 2,000 and thinking this means that there was 2,000 specific demons. We don't know for sure, but he agrees and he sends them there. And immediately the pigs go running down into the ocean and are drowned. The same kind of chaos that we see playing out in the life of this man that was possessed by the demons, this same kind of destruction that plays out in these pigs. Now, there's some people that really hate this part of the story. Those poor pigs. How could Jesus allow this to happen? Dear friends, it's because man is worth a whole lot more than pigs. This world has lost their mind. Look, I'm not some super aggressive anti-animal rights guy. I believe that We've got a responsibility as those that represent God and carrying out authority and dominion over creation. I believe that we've got a responsibility to be good stewards of everything that he's given us. And he declared all of his creation, including pigs, to be good. We don't have license to abuse animals, to mistreat animals. I'm not even a hunter. I have hunted, killed a deer with a bow, chopped the bottom half off a turkey with a bow. But it's just not my thing. So I'm, I'm not against caring for animals. I'm not against being good stewards of what God's given us. But this world has lost their mind. They've so denigrated the value of man. You see, they've fought so hard to deny the fact that we're created in the image of this infinitely worthy, infinitely holy God. They've so denied that we are anything more than an animal. The highest of the animals, that we're just an animal, though, just like all the rest. They so denied this that they don't see us as being any, more di any different, as having any more value than a pig or a horse or a dog or a cow. They've lost their minds. They've resisted what God has shown. Jesus himself said, look, don't worry. You yourself, you're worth more than many sparrows. It's only with man that God has this special relationship. It's only the blood of man for which God calls for this kind of justice. Dear friends, we're worth a whole lot more than 2,000 pigs, 2 million pigs, 2 billion pigs. It's only when we arrive at that spot and understanding that, we'll truly value life, all life, black life, white life, unborn life, 100-year-old life, special needs life, brilliant life, Gentile life, Jewish life, unsaved life, saved life. Atheist life, preacher life, even the life of a man that was possessed by demons. Jesus affirms right here, you're worth more than all these pigs. So he casts the demon out and he sends them into the pigs. The herdsmen, verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. So I wonder practically what happened to the pigs, right? They didn't burn up. They didn't jump off the mountain and explode on the ground. They ran down into the sea. They could have still been used. I mean, if I was there, I think I would have been running into the lake and trying to pull these pigs out so we could hurry up and slaughter them before the meat goes bad. We don't see that, and I don't know. Maybe they did. That just wasn't part of what's told to us here. It would have been better, by the way, if they had run down into the Dead Sea where there would have been a lot of salt. It could have just cured the meat right there on the spot. But we don't see anything other than that they take off and they go tell the rest of the people. They don't attack Jesus. They don't throw him in chains. They don't try to take his life. They go and get others, and they bring him. Verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right, man, right mind. Excuse me. Jesus Christ, Son of the Most High God, when he chooses to act, it doesn't matter the size of the army doesn't matter whether it was 3,000 or 6,000 or 6 million demons. When Jesus speaks, people get freed. There was nothing that Satan or his army of demons was going to do. By the very same word that he cast the angels from heaven down to earth, by the very same word that he's going to cast them from the earth to the pits of hell, by that very same word, he set this man free. That is our king. That is our savior. 
That is the one that we sing songs of worship to. With just a word, this man is in his right mind. He was suicidal. He was violent. He was naked. He was insane. He was all alone without help or hope in all the world. And by coming into the presence of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God, in an instant, he went from madman to disciple. If you don't hear me tell you anything else this morning, I need you to understand this. There is nothing in all the world. Nothing. Not insanity. Not suicidal thoughts. Not violence. Not anxiety. Not depression. Not loneliness. Not sin. Not a man possessed by so many demons that they numbered in the thousands. Nothing that can resist the Son of the Most High God when he chooses to act. Freedom in an instant. When Jesus Christ chooses to act like this, there is nothing beyond his reach. I'm begging you to hear me. Quit looking to the world for answers. They had no answers for this man. The best they could come up with was tying him up in chains. The world has a bunch of band-aids. Those band-aids will not hold any more than these chains held. Because they can't see the real problem. They just see the symptoms. The dude's violent. Let's chain him up. The dude's naked. Let's put some clothes on him. They can't see or accept the real problem here. Because the man without the Spirit, he is unable to accept or understand the things of the Spirit of God. They can't see things spiritually. Everything just becomes about the symptoms, the things that we see out there. And all things are spiritual. Don't you see? No, you're never going to be demon-possessed. You're never going to be so influenced by demons that we would call you possessed. And yet the root of all of it, the root of your sin, the root of your hurts, the root of your loneliness, the root of your obsession with things out there, the root of your insanity, the root of your anxiety, the root of your depression, it was all a result of the fall right there in the garden. The fall that only Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God, can make right. So stop looking out there for the answers. They don't even know the problem. Look to the one that came to destroy the works of the devil. You trust him. We don't need to run around trying to figure out which demons these are, trying to name the demons, trying to figure out how many demons there are, trying to figure out whether the problem that is before us is a possession or just some type of extreme spiritual warfare or perhaps just the ordinary sins of wretched men because the answer is the same. Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God, by his word and the work of his spirit, when he chooses to act, when the seed that is his word, the secret of the kingdom of God, when it strikes a heart prepared in advance, a heart of good soil, there's nothing that's off limits. There's nothing that cannot be changed in that instance. This man was out of his mind. The world would tell us, okay, we've got to get him to, to think the right thoughts then. We need to treat his mind, right? If we can just change the way you think, if we can get you more knowledge, we can somehow pour the right thoughts into your head, everything's going to be okay. And God says, no, your problem is sin. Your problem is that you're separated from me. It's not until you are reunited with me, reconciled with me through my son, Jesus Christ. It's not until you are found in him that you will be set free from your sin. That you'll be set free from the grips of slavery to Satan. That you'll be set free from the flesh. It's only then that you will be renewed in your mind. It's only then that you will be transformed. When you're found in him. Quit trying to go around me. Quit trying to treat the symptoms. Look to my son, Jesus Christ, son of the most high God, and there you will find transformation. There you will find freedom. There you will find salvation. Quit looking to the world for answers. If Jesus Christ is enough for this man, he's enough for you, and he's enough for the ones you love. There has never been a more helpless man in all the earth than this dude right here. And with the word, he was whole. Absolute peace where there was utter chaos. And the people were afraid. And those who had seen it, I'm in verse 16, and those who had seen it 
described to them what had happened in the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So the demons begged him to send them into the pigs. Now the people begged him to leave the town. That you, you may have expected them to line up. Say, wait, 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 you did that for him? What could you do for me? I may not be possessed, but Jesus, I don't do the things I want to do, and I do the things I don't want to do. I, too, am a slave. And if you can do that for that guy, what could you do in my life, Jesus? Would you please stay here and do more? We want to see more. We want to learn more. We want to know more. This crazy man, he confessed you as Jesus, son of the most high God. And in an instant, he was transformed. Tell us more. But they don't. They don't. They didn't recognize that what was outwardly manifested in this possessed man was what goes on inside all of us apart from Jesus Christ. They were all slaves apart from Jesus Christ. John Calvin said this, Though we are not tortured by the devil, yet he holds us as his slaves till the Son of God delivers us from his tyranny. Naked, torn, and disfigured, we wander about till he restores us to the soundness of mind. We are all oppressed. We're all enslaved. We're all entrapped. Our affliction may be lighter. Our symptoms may be less obvious. We may have figured out how to take our sin and wrap it up into a prettier package. We may work hard to contain our sins to those which are socially acceptable so they don't chain us up and throw us out among the tombs. But ultimately, we are all right here. But we lie to ourselves. We trick ourselves. We don't believe we need to be transformed, and so we just pick around the edges. Just a little bit of religious reform around the edges, and then everything's going to be okay. Never recognizing that we're enslaved to sin and to Satan, just like this guy. And that's why the presence of Jesus didn't bring them any hope. That's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is not seen as good news. Because you think you just need tweaks around the edges. You just need some new knowledge. You just need to think some different thoughts. You don't think you need to be transformed. You don't think that you're a slave. So they were terrified by the presence of Jesus. They were less challenged by the presence of a demon-possessed man than son of the Most High God, the one who set him free. They were more comfortable in the presence of Satan than they were of God. So they pleaded with him, would you please go? Because the demoniac, he didn't challenge them spiritually. It was a physical thing. He didn't demand any change in their life. He didn't demand they confront sin. So they begged Jesus, would you go? Because they'd witnessed his power. If you remember that Jesus said to the Pharisees as they challenged him and they told him that he was, he was casting demons from people by the power of Beelzebub, what did he say? If I cast out demons by the finger of, finger of God, you will know that the kingdom of God has come. They knew that the kingdom of God has come, and they knew that they were looking at the king, and it was a terrifying thing. So they begged him to go. Verse 18. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. So Jesus gets back in the boat to go home. This was a short trip. It traveled through this terrific storm. Jesus could show his power over even nature. So that he could reveal the fear, the cowardice, the distrust that was still in the hearts of his disciples. Carries them to the other side where they're confronted with this madman and he again shows his power and his authority over the demons. And then they get in the boat to head home and this man begs. The demons, they begged. Would you throw us into the pigs? The townspeople, they begged. Would you get the heck out of here? And now this man, he begged. Can I please be with you? Because when you've truly been transformed, when you truly know and have been known by the Son of the Most High God, you don't want to be anywhere else in all the earth. You know you've been transformed. So he's begging him, can I just be with you? Because when you have experienced the power of Jesus Christ in your life and you recognize he is for me, and what you find is that his goodness and his greatness, that his power and his love, they combine and they draw you in. They don't chase you away. 
You don't beg him to leave. You beg him to let you stay. Let me be with you, Jesus. I see who you are and I see what you've done. Verse 19, and he, that is Jesus, did not permit him to stay, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim it in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. He wouldn't let him come. Instead, he sends him out. Before he sent out the 12, before he sent out the 72, he takes this man that was absolutely and utterly out of control. Naked, violent, suicidal, completely alienated from man and from God, and he sends him out. No more training. You're ready. You know what you need to know. You once were lost, but now you're found. Was blind, but now you see. Go. Go tell people what Jesus has done for you. Is that why we don't go? He's not done anything for us? We don't have a testimony? He's saying, go. Go and tell these people all that has just happened to you. You see, he didn't do that with everybody else. You realize that? Everybody else that he healed, he said, shh, don't tell anybody yet. Was it because this man was in Gentile country? Was it because he knew that there was very little danger that when word traveled amongst the Decapolis, what Jesus had done, that they were going to try to take him and make him into an earthly king? Was it because he thought that maybe this, had it, this gospel, that it was going to sink into the hearts of these people that knew nothing of Yahweh, that knew nothing of the Jewish law, and they were going to be less likely to try and take his life? Was it because he knew these people would be more receptive to this message? We don't know. We know that he sent him, and we've got to imagine that this man had just a fantastically successful ministry. We'll see later as Jesus goes back into Gentile country, and there's more people that know. Is it because of people that have come to him while he was in Galilee and were healed? Was it because of this man? But the word was traveling. The word was traveling fast, and this man got to play a part in that. Go tell people what I've done. So tell people of my power, but tell them of my goodness too. Go tell people of my greatness, but tell them of my love too. Tell them what happens when you sit at my feet. Tell them what happens when you recognize that I'm Jesus Christ, Son of the Most High God. Tell them. And watch while they're transformed too. Dear friends, I pray this is an incredible encouragement to you this morning. I pray firstly that if you are a son of God, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, that you recognize that the evil one cannot touch you, not in this way. He can attack. He can tempt. He will spend night and day trying to lure you away, trying to whisper lies into your head, but you will never be controlled because you have been set free. By the authority of his word and the power of his spirit, you resist. But I also recognize that there is most certainly some people gathered with us this morning. It's impossible for there not to be. People gathered with us this morning that are still enslaved. And maybe they're grading on a curve. Maybe they're going, you know what, I'm not naked. I'm not cutting myself. So maybe I'm okay. At least I'm not that dude over there. That's why the people were comfortable. They had somebody to look down on. At least we're not crazy, Bill. What God is saying is, apart from a true relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, apart from repentance, turning to Jesus Christ in trust, saying, Jesus, I just want to be with you. You're a slave. You will never be free. Doesn't matter what this world tells you. Doesn't matter what marginal success you have around the edges. Ultimately, you are not free. So I extend that offer to you today. You can be free. Not all transformations are this incredible, this instantaneous. I'd love to know the rest of this guy's story. He wasn't done sinning. Do you think there were still days when times got hard and he thought, feeling this urge to cut myself with some rocks? Possibly. 
but he looked to Jesus Christ, the one that had set him free, and he said, no, I'm free. I am free. No promise that everything just gets peachy overnight because we still live in a world where temptation and sin and demons do their work. But you will never be truly free. You will never have the power to resist. You will never find yourself reconciled to God until you look to his son, Jesus Christ, and you say, you, I want to be with you. You are the son of the most high God, and you are the only place I can find freedom and truth, and I want to be with you today. That's the answer. That's the offer. You don't have to be in this church house to be saved. You don't have to say some magic prayer to be saved. If today the words that I have said have been like seed striking good soil, the reality of who Jesus is is taking root in your heart. Scripture says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So call on the name of the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. You don't need my permission. You don't need me to stand over you and make sure you do it right. You don't need my stamp of approval. If today's the day, then today's the day. Respond today. And then go out and tell everybody what Jesus has done. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that you are our God. What a terrifying thing. What a terrifying thing it would be to know your power and your holiness and your might and yet stand from afar and go, well, I'll deal with that later. Or perhaps to look inwardly at our own sin and think, no, God, you, you can't deal with a man like me. What a terrifying thing to take one step further in this life without being reconciled to you when the offer is right there. But Father, we know that it is the chains of sin and self and Satan that hold us back. So Father, I, I plead with you this morning that you would break some chains, that you would set people free, that they would make their goal not just to stop all the craziness in their life, they would make their goal to please you, to know you, to walk with you. You said if we do this, then all the rest will be added. As we continue to attack the symptoms, as we continue to look around at the things we want you to do in our life, we will never know you and we will never be free. Help us to make you the end, not the means to the end. Help us to look to you and to your son, Jesus Christ, and to see you as everything. Father, as we use these voices that you've entrusted to us, Father, these vocal cords, the breath in our lungs to lift up songs of praise, Father, we pray that they would be pleasing to you, that you would be glorified now. It's your son's precious name we pray. Amen.